Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. What makes them industry giants? Get ready to take a peek inside and learn their secrets of success. This is Silicon Valley Insider, the show that demystifies the valley and helps to elevate your business to the next level. Now, your host for Silicon Valley Insider, Keith Koo. Welcome to Silicon Valley Insider. I'm your host, Keith Koo. And thanks for tuning in. Today is our anniversary show. It's going to be a retrospective on some of the best clips from the past year. Plus, we're going to talk about how the show got started, who's really important in the production of the show, as well as what's in store in the coming year. So stay tuned. And thanks again. It was a very busy week for tech news. First up, California actually drafted a bill defining blockchain and cryptocurrency. It's called Assembly Bill 2658, and it introduces the legal definitions of blockchain technology, smart contracts, and also revises electronic record and electronic signature. Why would a state, California, Wyoming, or Connecticut, develop their own terminology? That is because the feds are still also determining what it is, and there's up to seven different federal agencies involved. So I'll continue to give you updates on definitions, but it just shows the progress that blockchain and distributed ledger technologies is making. Also, Twitter, Facebook, Google are on the hot seat this week in Capitol Hill, and this is because of all the news that's been going around around fake news and the government wanting to know what companies like Facebook and Twitter are going to do to address it. Uh, This is also related to their stocks, the fangs, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, suffering some declines because people think that this is more regulation. And as we've talked about on this show repeatedly, one of the things that is new to the technology world is this true aspect of being regulated. So for instance, Jack Dorsey, CEO of Twitter, he is defending whether or not Twitter's algorithms have built-in biases. And I was talking about systemic biases throughout previous weeks on this show. Also, Facebook is building an actual war room to monitor the midterm elections to ensure that, in their view, that nothing will get through that will unseemingly bias the outcome of the election. On a more positive note, Actifio, which we've had on our show in the past, a Silicon Valley unicorn, they were named for the second year one of the hottest and best positioned private tech companies by JMP Securities, And also, I'm very excited to announce that IBM made an announcement that they are working on a self-sovereign identity management platform with a company called Humanity. Next week, I will have Jerry Cuomo, the VP of Blockchain Technologies with IBM on. And um, I was lucky to get one of the first interviews or the first interview regarding this technology. And that's the news of the week. So this week, we're doing an anniversary show, and I wanted to introduce my executive producer, Tess Phelan, who actually discovered me in doing Silicon Valley Insider. Let's listen to what she had to say. I initially met Keith Koo by reading his LinkedIn profile, and that led me to read more about him, and I found that I thought he would make a perfect host for a business show. 
on KDOW 1220 AM Business News. So I contacted Keith and asked him if he would be interested in discussing an on-air show. And his response was, that sounds intriguing. Now that small email message led to further discussion with the program director and the on-air producer and lots of different people, and thus became the show Guardian Insights, which ultimately became Silicon Valley Insider. And I was then asked by Keith if I would be interested in being the executive producer of the show. I was flattered, and I said, yes, I would. What I have found Keith to be is a consummate professional, open to learning, open to critique, open to doing additional takes, open to uh, new people, new ideas, innovations. And I have found the entire experience of working with Keith Koo to be an amazing journey. I'm very excited I was invited to be a part of it, and I look forward to what's coming up in the next year. So I wanted to add on what Tess said, and I wanted to thank Tess for what she said, that when she originally asked me to do a show, I wasn't that interested, but then I realized that there was a message to be brought, and that's where my consulting firm, Guardian Insight, comes in. The original show was called Guardian Insights, and it was a technology risk-based show. And in my consulting practice, we help large enterprises mid-sized companies and startups do business with each other. And whether you know it or not, all business is a risk management exercise. And really it's the customer wanting to push on as much risk to the vendor or the partner and the vendor partner wanting to push risk on to their partner or client. And what we do is make sure that whoever's engaged us, similar to a realtor or a relationship advisor, that the side that hires us clearly understands what they're getting into. And we love when we get into bilateral communication because then it's very open and we get to a true win-win situation. So once Tess got us on board to do a show, we started doing these risk management shows. We rose to like top five risk management podcasts of all things. And we started picking up listeners in other countries like China and India. And actually we're listened to in 87 countries now. And we realized that even though there's this underlying theme of the importance of doing business with each other properly, that we had many more stories to tell. And that's when we rebranded the Silicon Valley Insider. And that's also when I transitioned to Brian Recton, who's the account director at Salem, who had a few things to say about us as well. Hi, this is Brian Recton, Senior Account Executive here at Salem Media Group, and it's been an amazing year to see the unprecedented growth of Silicon Valley Insiders. The caliber of programming and the guests have been stellar, and I happen to have insider info, no pun intended, Silicon Valley Insider information on plans for the coming year. So keep tuning in. It's going to get better and better. Next up is my main man, my sound engineer. Marco Yukolovich, who I would not be able to do this show without. And this is what Marco had to say. Hi, this is Marco Yukolovich, board engineer for the Silicon Valley Insider Radio Show. I've had the pleasure of working with Keith Koo over this past year. And I have to say, it started out a little shaky with him. He wasn't the most confident guy on the microphone. 
He's evolved over this past year as a good interviewer and show host, and he's brought in really great guests talking about blockchain and cryptocurrency and all these other different technologies like AI that I really have never knew too much about or cared about. It's been a big interest to me of late. So, Keith, I just want to thank you on your year anniversary on doing Silicon Valley Insider. I look forward to many more guests and many more shows with you here on Silicon Valley Insider. And last but not least is very well-known radio personality and the program director for the two stations I'm on, Craig Roberts, who happens to be also a very funny guy. Hi, this is Craig Roberts, Program Director of KDOW Radio. Cutting-edge technology has been the pivot point upon which the financial world turns ever since the invention of the stock ticker in 1867. Well, certainly we've come a long way since then, but high-tech and new-tech continues to drive the markets and the world of money. One program that KDOW is pleased to wear that successfully covers the world of emerging tech is Keith Koo's Silicon Valley Insider. Each week, this shaker and mover named Keith Koo helps us all discover the latest information on what's hot in the digital world, new concepts for innovation, disruption, and pivoting in Silicon Valley and beyond. So, Keith, as you mark your one-year anniversary here on KDOW, let me just say how privileged we are to have you share your world with us and how proud we are to have you as part of the KDOW radio team. So, congratulations. And by the way, that bottle of Amois de Brignac Brut Rosé I ordered for you, if it failed to arrive, I'd suggest a serious talk with your producer. So once again, I'd like to thank everyone for the well wishes on the first year. Stay tuned, because next up is former Chief Technology Officer of Department of Homeland, Mike Hermes. If you have any questions or comments, email us at info at svn.biz, and we'll be right back. For questions or comments on today's program, call one 888 828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now, back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith Koo. Hey, Insiders. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo. Today is a retrospective show because it's our one-year anniversary. I want to thank the listeners again. So this is a question I've been saving because it's the one-year show. Uh People want to know, Keith, how did you get your start? So we talked in the first segment about how the show got started, but actually how I got my start is I was out of college, trained as a banker at Wells Fargo, and it was during the post-SNL crisis, so I'm dating myself a little bit. The first interstate merger happened, and I got put on the merger team as a very young man, and that was a really cool experience. And that led to me developing software projects for the bank and then getting hired by Cisco Systems to lead M&A integration for technology, where ultimately, and throughout my career, I've, I've worked on over 100 M&A deals and divestitures. And so if you think about Aeronet Wireless, the first commercial Wi-Fi, you think about Celsius, which became the Cisco IP phones that you see in the movies, um, I hand a hand in all of that. And that then led to a career in technology partner management and technology risk, ultimately leading into being a managing director for the Bank of Tokyo or MUFG, and then starting a technology risk consulting practice with the main objective of letting companies know, large enterprise, multi-billion dollar companies, um, how to do business in a safe manner in order to manage your risk, optimize your assets, increase your productivity, 
and ultimately also cut costs. And we did our first shows in a Guardian Insight, which you can listen to, and we discussed all that. Also, what happened is uh, lots of advisory roles for startups where same skill set, how do you help keep startups safe in a very highly regulated environment, which is what we said was the secret sauce of Silicon Valley in the heyday, is that it was free access to capital, smart people, smart university system, great weather, but really this lack of what we know as regulation today. And we can even see more fact of that, that Theranos just completely dissolved this week. The message I want to impart is that we're still in the heart of innovation, but due to fintech, things like blockchain, um, health innovation, regulations are increasing, and we help navigate people through that process, whether they're a large company or whether they're a small company. If you ever had a question, just email us at info at svn.biz. So next up is a recent interview I had with the former chief technology officer at the Department of Homeland Security, Mike Hermes, and he really hit the nail on the head on how to do business with the government. Mike was most recently the chief technology officer of the Department of Homeland Security. And before that, he was a software entrepreneur. So, Mike, how was that transition from being a software entrepreneur into the government sector? The reality is what I found that there's a lot of, you know, folks working hard every day trying to make a difference in, in important missions. Uh, and although they, you know, might be stuck in the status quo, they might be, you know, struggling with, you know, pro- bureaucratic processes, they mostly want to do the right thing. And so I found that while I had to spend some energy convincing people what the right thing was, um, there was generally openness to, to change, you know, if, if I were able to persuade people that it was going to be good for the mission. And that was very, that, that made me feel good. How do you get organizations like the government or a large bank or a large hospital system, how do you get them to actually um, not just embrace technology, but adopt the technology as well? That's exactly right. And, and, and shifting, I actually wrote a, a, an article um, you know, a couple years ago about, about turning that battleship, right? It's like turning a giant ship. Um, and it's a useful metaphor because the bottom line is there's inertia in these large organizations, right? They have been doing things for a particular way for reasons. You know, that's one thing I, I found, you know, when I entered the government is that, you know, while you might come from the outside and look at all this, these bureaucratic processes and scratch your head, the reality is they were put in place for reasons. Somebody made a mistake here. Somebody, you know, committed a crime there. And so you layered processes to to protect and to safeguard and to ensure fairness and equity. Um, but the reality is that these organizations, more than ever, need help in changing direction, right? Um, the, you know, we, I, I talk a lot about, you know, if you, if you pay attention to the world, now you see bad things happening. You see cyber attacks daily. You see, you know, you know uh, geopolitical actors, you know, leveraging technology platforms for, for, to, to sow disinformation and to kind of create geopolitical conflict. This is all because technology has changed so rapidly that our institutions haven't been able to, to keep up with them. Um, so I think looking at how to connect the dots between the, the incredible innovation that's occurring in places like Silicon Valley, you know, like Austin, like Boston, like even the D.C. area, uh, with these large institutions uh, is tremendously important, almost a matter of national security from my perspective. That's a really good point. So, so what are some of the trends you're seeing um, in the government and outside the government? 
So I think, you know, look, there's there's a lot of, um, the, you can play buzzword bingo with some of the major trends, right? And you people talk a lot about blockchain. They talk a lot about artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, the reality is these are two, incre- and they talk a lot about cybersecurity, right? Um, these are areas that are really, really important. I fundamentally believe uh, that of all the disruptive technologies, that artificial intelligence and machine learning is the one that's going to disrupt most it's going to disrupt everything. It's going to disrupt other technology areas. It's going to disrupt all businesses. It will enable and empower and, and, and drive radical, you know, value creation in a number of areas. But it's also going to create tremendous di- disruption. And you know, uh, as you hear a lot of people talk about AI, you know, you hear them. Some folks are, are you know, prophesying doom and gloom, and others are prophesying, you know, a utopia. And the, and the real question is, you know, uh, is it going to be a little both? <laughs> I, I believe that um, the government is working hard to harness some of those technologies. But in many cases, you've got solutions chasing the problem. You've got solutions looking for a problem to solve rather than inverting it and saying, look, what problems do I have that are really important to my mission or to my business? And how do I find the right technology, you know, to to apply to that problem? And that comes from, you know, a disconnect between the the problem domain and the solution domain. Because the folks in the government or in a large, you know, uh, commercial enterprise, they understand their, their business very well. They understand the problem domain very well. But they don't understand the solution domain. Right. right. The folks in the startups, they understand their solution very well. They know how, you know, AI or blockchain or whatever it may be they, they are working on, how we can do things, but they don't understand the business well enough to connect the dots. And so you need facilitators almost, I think, to kind of help help connect those dots. You know, look at things like um, robotic process automation, yes. right? You know, this is a classic example of where you can take very interesting tech, apply it to traditional processes, and squeeze a ton of optimization right off the bat without radically re-engineering the process. Now, I always advocate for looking at your processes rather than just automating them, um, but there's a place for both. You know, particularly in large bureaucratic institutions where you need to actually harness savings in order to invest in real disruptive technology. That's exactly um, spot on. I think that whatever industry you're in, especially for something that's institutionalized or legacy, understanding your process is first. Process comes before a, any technology solution. And I think that's where um, many organizations often want to jump straight to the solutioning because they think it's going to help them with their, pro- with their problem in processes. Uh, we talk a lot about just in any outsourcing context that before you decide to outsource a function, you should really make sure you have no problems because if you do still have some really inherent problems, you're just outsourcing your problem. That's right. Yeah, that's right. The same thing goes with applying technology, right? If you if you automate a flawed process, you're just doing bad things faster. Right. <laughs> and, you know, so you have to take a look at uh, what am I trying to achieve with this process? What are the outcomes I'm trying to drive? And how can I both optimize the process and optimize the application of technology to achieve those outcomes better, faster, cheaper, what have you? You know, basic principle that you 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 apply technology to problems that make sense. Now, the blockchain in particular, you know, is so hyped that people are, you know, we, we all know the story about the Long Island iced tea blockchain company yeah, or whatever it was, right? I mean, you know, th- there's lots of examples like that. And when, you know, when, when monetary concerns and in some cases, quite frankly, greed, you know, drive those decisions, um, you, you don't end up with the best outcomes. Uh, and in the government, 
you know, it's different because the, there's no profit motive, you know, which actually cr- creates different dynamics. What there is is mission outcome, you know, and mission motive. Um, and so, you know, startup companies who are used to driving or talking to business uh, executives about, about bottom line um, have to start changing the way they talk to speak to mission more effectively. And that's one of the things I think is very different in the public sector and the private sector. So once again, I want to thank Mike Hermes for being on that show So coming up next is an interview I had with Dr. John Madison, Chief Health Information Officer at Kaiser. If you have any questions or comments or you want to be on the show, email us at info at svn.biz. And we'll be right back. For questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith Koo. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider. I'm your host, Keith Koo, and thanks for joining me on my anniversary show. Coming up, we're going to have a few speakers that we've had on in the past that are all not only brilliant minds in their respective fields, but are moving forward in this concept called technology for good. And in fact, it's such a great concept. We'll be doing a lot of shows this coming year, highlighting more and more of these types of innovators, companies, and solutions, just so we can all feel good about where technology is progressing. So stay tuned. Last week during the tech news segment, I had talked about how Niantic, the parent company of Pokemon Go, was about to launch a series of new products that would actually do augmented reality or AR mapping. So back to you being the product and you giving free service, they're going to use you to map all the unknown parts of the world, but in 3D. So I thought it'd be helpful to revive some tips on how to keep you and your children safe using an app like Pokemon Go. So there's a few obvious things like watch where you're walking. There were a lot of stories of people getting hit by cars, running into objects, falling off of cliffs. And that's really not a joke. That is actually something that's really happened. Always remember to follow the rules. Don't break the law. And if you're financially conscious, check how much data your phone's actually using. And in your smart device, there should be a setting for a Pokemon Go app or for what Niantic's planning, the Harry Potter app. Make sure all that is the way you want it to be set up. Lastly, be sure to protect your data. Just as we found out with Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, Pokemon Go and other apps are really tied. You don't even know how many different applications are tied to, to everything you're doing. So think about it. Your GPS is on, your location tracking with that. Uh, If you're taking photos, your GPS is also saying your um, geolocation for the photo itself. Just be smart in anything you're doing with these applications. I have been around technology for over two decades. And when I met John, he is truly a thought leader when it comes to health sciences and technology. So just really excited to have him on board. Dr. Madison, who once you hear him and see him live in person, he's just a phenomenal speaker and, and thought leader. He had talked about how he believes that there's about half a dozen emerging technologies that in the next 12 to 18 months, coupled with other emerging technologies in a converged way are going to just take off. And once applied, they're going to benefit humankind. So we've got all this information in the universe of knowledge. We've got all this information about you. And what are we going to do? Just like dump it into your skull and all of a sudden you do all the right things? No, it doesn't work that way. We're all creatures of habit. We need to spend a lot more time and energy on motivational science and behavioral economics and use this 
meta machine learning or meta AI to bridge between the universe of knowledge and the universe of what we know about a single individual. And I like to refer to, as opposed to the singularity is here, the diadarity is here. And what I mean by the diadarity is this human machine interface between how we apply what we know to you specifically in a way that is not intruding into your thought process, into your workflow, but becomes much more naturally meshed between the human and the machine. So I believe that the ultimate goal of what we're trying to do is to, is to create a behavioral symphony of wellness and to use a, a human machine meshing and a diadarity to really deliver the best results in ways that conform to my personal way of learning, your person, different yes. from your personal way of learning. What motivates me and what motivates you? And so it's those human factors of how we receive op and operate on information and how we translate that into healthy behavior to the lead to resilience and that long lifestyle and that long lifespan and long health span. So, John, I mean, that was a mouthful for sure. I'm so impressed because I think on our show we have a lot of companies about artificial intelligence and there's a lot of controversy about how it's being used. Right. I think you've just given humanity hope that technology can be good for them. They should just be listening to all the, the horror stories and that there's real applications that are coming, and you said this, it's really exciting in the next year or so, that will really transcend a lot of what people know today. Absolutely, and, and, and so we need, to put, we need to put this in context. So um, I've spoken a lot um, about some of the concerns that people like Elon Musk and uh, Stephen Hawking yes. uh, and others have raised, uh, most recently Sergey Brin, on uh, some of the risks associated with AI and machine learning. So Dr. Madison was referring to the fears that Elon Musk, Sergey Brin, and Stephen Hawking and others have around how artificial intelligence unfettered will take over humanity and actually be the cause of humanity's destruction. However, Dr. Madison actually has a slightly different view, and here's what he had to say. What I'd like to call out is the fact that there is a huge literature already about cognitive bias. So the way humans think, I like to refer to as carbon thinking, of course. And the way machine learning thinks is what I like to refer to as silicon thinking. If you look at the literature of, of intrinsic and inherent uh, bi cognitive bias in carbon thinking, what we do as humans, and how poorly it's applied in healthcare today in general, we can use machine learning to help expose and make transparent both the in silicon thinking biases as well as the in carbon-based biases of the human mind. And, and when we expose them and make them more evident, we have at least the opportunity to, to pres preserve and protect social equity as well as avoid the pitfalls of both uh, cognitive bias in carbon and the biases that are intrinsic to silicon thinking. And that is what leads us to the next interview, which is Dr. Drew Taylor from Toronto. Dr. Taylor's company, Acorn Labs, actually won the TyQuest, which is the number one award for the chapter in Toronto. And his company actually cryogenically freezes cells now 
and can save them later for literally rebooting your genome. What we've done is we've developed everything into a kit, and, and we've spent a lot of time actually developing the technologies that are allowed to are able to ship these cells viably through the mail. So we can send you a kit with our proprietary our proprietary kit, and you can do a non-invasive cell collection in the comfort of your own home. Okay. Very easy, and uh, ship the cells back to us. Well, they'll arrive viably through the mail, and it's all non-invasive. So we take those cells and that simple procedure and put them down into cryogenic storage for you. And in the future, you know, if, heaven forbid, something comes up where you do need access to those cells to treat yourself, you'll have access to not only the kind of you know, older, damaged cells that you have today, but this younger population of cells that hasn't, you know, experienced all of those degeneration throughout age and also has not been exposed to the disease that will have those systemic effects on you today. Um, not a really good analogy, but kind of like the seed lab up in the Arctic. <laughs> yeah, you know what? It's uh, it's very true. Yeah, we're, we're tucking away. You know, that's why we called ourselves Acorn. We're tucking away part of you for the future. So that's a wrap on the medical breakthroughs. Next up is Jonathan Nelson, who's the founder of the Hack Fund. And Jonathan is tokenizing venture capital, which is a revolutionary way of trying to raise money. And he has a mission to do that, to empower developing nations to get the same access to VC money that Silicon Valley has. Let's listen to what he had to say. Jonathan has a really interesting background. Uh, He has previously raised a $600 million portfolio market cap in five years. And he's actually also a member of the SEC's Advisory Committee for Capital Formation for Small and Emerging Business. He's also a board member of Wilson Center for Public Policy, Latin America. So Jonathan, thanks for being here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Jonathan, uh, I know you speak a lot. I know you're everywhere, but I think what you're doing with the Hack Fund is super interesting. So, before we get into that, though, why don't we talk a little bit more about how you got started? <laughs> it's a strange story. How far back do you want to go? As far back as you want. You can go back to the, <laughs> what is it, the, the fields of Honduras? So, I was the only white child at the end of six hours of dirt road in rural Honduras growing up. Um, we then moved to this little known country called Costa Rica, and I lived there for 10 years. Um, I thought it was normal to ride sea turtles because the park rangers always wanted to take a you know, Polaroid picture with a little you know, blonde kid. And so we've been fairly agnostic as to how our companies get capital, whether it be venture capital, will it be angel investing. Um, so crowdfunding is an interesting option for us. We submitted a bunch of comments to the SEC on crowdfunding, and that's what got me on an advisory committee in the SEC on capital formation because not a whole lot of people have had the background of talking with thousands of entrepreneurs about their capital problems. Entrepreneurs? Entrepreneurs. That's good. A lot of times people thought that Silicon Valley is literally out of reach, and you're actually bringing it to them. Yes. And we're, we've been creating bridges from Silicon Valley to around the globe. So hackers and founders events, I mentioned they went viral. They've been held in 130 cities around the globe. We've had 300,000 entrepreneurs attend our events over the last 10 years. And what do you do with that? And you end up in the middle of this global explosion of technology innovation. You know, I went to go visit my brother in Guadalajara six years ago. And we go to a Starbucks and everybody in the Starbucks had a little $300 netbook. And I'm like, this is not the Latin America that I grew up in. And these people had netbooks and a lot of them were coding. And I'm like, this is strange. I had never thought of Guadalajara as an engineering hub. Guadalajara has more engineers than all of Ireland. So stay tuned. In our last segment, we'll have more of Jonathan Nelson. I did want to take a moment to call out a few highlights from this past year. One is we had Jedediah Yue, who is the founder and chairman 
of a company called Delphix, a data management company, a Silicon Valley unicorn. He had written a book called Disrupt or Die, and we were the first to interview him. That book had 100,000 downloads in the first two weeks. Also, we had, again, Actifio, which I earlier named as one of the hottest tech companies. That, too, is a unicorn, and they're doing very well. We had Ellen Petrie Leans, who is the author of The Happiness Hack, and she's also now the chief people person at a startup. Thanks to Dr. Vanila Singh, chief medical officer of the Department of Health and Human Services, Dr. Singh talked about how she believes technology can solve for things like the opiate crisis. We had Jay Chowdhury, the CEO of Zscaler, who happened to be the hottest IPO of the early part of 2018 with over a $3.5 billion valuation. We also had, most recently, Bob Lord, the chief digital officer of IBM, who talked about how he and the IBM team fully committed to supporting the Call for Code, an initiative geared towards natural disaster and disaster relief and how we solve for those issues via technology. And we had collaboratively done the first North American hackathon for Call for Code. So it's been a great year. Thanks again. So if you have any questions or comments, email us at info at svin.biz, and we'll be right back. For questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now, back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith Koo. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider. I'm your host, Keith Koo, and today we've been celebrating our one-year anniversary of the Silicon Valley Insider show. In our last segment, we had Jonathan Nelson of the Hack Fund talking about how he's tokenizing venture capital, and we're going to continue on with them now. I, I looked at actually doing this on the NASDAQ, on the public markets in the United States. It was going to cost me $5 million just to get off the ground and about $3 million a year in maintenance. So I, I literally had a phone call with a lawyer in Manhattan, and the phone call went like this. Oh, hello, Jonathan. Sorry, it's very loud. I'm on my, I'm the deck of my yacht in the Manhattan Harbor, so if I can't hear you, you'll have to repeat yourself. Oh, 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 Caesar, Caesar, can you give me some more Chablis, please? And don't spill that. That's white leather. You know how it stained the last time. Sorry, Jonathan, you were saying, oh, no, 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 no. It doesn't make any sense to build a publicly traded fund for less than, you know, a billion dollars under management, because frankly, you can't afford my legal fees. <laughs> And, and that was the conversation. And I'm like, well, there's your problem. Um, and being a hacker and a founder, um, I just decided there's got to be a better way to do this and to decrease costs. Um, and you talk about what you do at the events and people started saying blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. And so after 18 months of legal work, um, talking with 12 different law firms in eight different legal jurisdictions. Um, we finally found that the Cayman Islands, we are essentially a publicly traded closed-end fund. Um, Cayman Islands has a carve-out for publicly traded closed-end funds. Um, they are not to be regulated, but they exist, and buyer beware. What are some of the things that we can go back to in terms of what inspired you to create this? For me, it's been how do I help my friends build their companies. Um, you know, venture-funded startups in Silicon Valley, less than 4% are women, have women founders, less than 1% have African-American or Hispanic founders. Um, and I don't think that's a malicious um, institutional prejudice. I think it, I, 
know why it happens. It's just it's a byproduct of, hey, you went to Stanford and, hey, we went to Harvard and you invest in people like you that you know of. Um, we have an app, we have an application process when people want to actually get funded by us. We remove their names, genders, ages, schools that they come from. So it's basically just based on what you do. Um, and 60% of our companies have a woman, an Hispanic, or an African-American founder. That's awesome. Um, what keeps me working 100 hours a week isn't making a ton of money. You know, I'm not a person that's motivated by money. I'm motivated by solving very hard problems. Um, I know that I have to make a lot of money for my investors. I know I'm going to do very, very well. But what if we could actually change how we capitalize companies around the world? And what if through that we could actually put shoes on hundreds of millions of children's? You know, I grew up in Latin America. The Spanish-speaking world is 10% of the world's economy. Right. Um, that 10% of the world's economy receives $500 million a year in angel, venture, and private equity combined. Uber's last investment round was $2 billion. Right. So one quarter of Uber's last investment round is what goes into the continent of Latin America. A $100 million fund increases investment into Latin America by 10 to 15% per year. That's a tiny, tiny venture fund in Silicon Valley. But you, that will move entire economies, create thousands of new jobs, which means tens of thousands of families will be deeply affected by that, which means that over the course of 10 years, we can conceivably put shoes on millions of children. Why? Because we're finally able to start investing in emerging markets um, and giving these people um, the same chance that somebody else in Silicon Valley has. Um, in my mind, that's what's worth, what's worth working 100 hours a week for, and that's what keeps me going. So thanks again to Jonathan Nelson of the Hack Fund. I'm looking forward to seeing how his tokenization of VC plays out. We're now going into the conundrum of the week, and this is going to be interesting. Google claims MasterCard data doesn't violate privacy rights. So quickly, Google can now tie MasterCard data and find out more about you as a person. So in essence, you can buy something in a physical store and Google can still find out about that even though there's nothing online about that purchase. This portion of the show is really not about right or wrong. It's a way to make people think and interact that how do you feel about a situation like that? So again, this is, this is where you make online purchases and we pretty much assume now that we're being tracked on those purchases. So some people think, well, I'm not gonna do any purchases online. I'm instead gonna be purchasing in a physical store with my credit card. And now we're learning that it doesn't violate any privacy matters according to these companies, but yet they're still able to, in essence, track you. At this point in time, Google is saying that they only collect data in aggregate and not at an individual level. So just something to think about. So I wanted to end the show with a big thank you to everyone who listens on the radio and on the podcast, and that the next year will be even more exciting we're planning to do some series. Already in the works is a series on the crisis of hiring in Silicon Valley and for technical jobs in general. And we will additionally do more shows on risk and security, blockchain, and investments. So thanks again. As always, if you have any questions or comments, email us at svn.biz, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo. 
For questions or comments on today's program or to schedule a complimentary consultation with Keith about your business, call 1-888-828-SVIN. That's 1-888-828-7846. 888-828-SVIN. 